Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Another Oscar race checkpoint as we are chock full of trailers and previews and festival news. Oh my, for you on this lovely ORC episode. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also, Mike. Yeah, we got a lot to cover. Let's dive right into it. Uh, Just before we hit record, uh, we had the big story drop on our heads from Variety by Brent Lang and Rebecca Rubin with the headline, Scarlett Johansson sues Disney for breach of contract over Black Widow release, Michael, because, of course, you know, she had a deal on the back end to make some extra money, and this one went to day and date, went to streaming, and she's got a bone to pick with Disney. Yeah, uh, and she's not the first. We mentioned previously here how John Krasinski and and Emily Blunt uh, kind of did the same thing with Paramount and saying that, look, you're not necessarily honoring the theatrical windows that we were told in our contracts you would honor. Mm -hmm. That's going to affect our back-end bonuses. You are going to end up owing us more money. I think the uh, Paramount-Krasinski deal got resolved. Scarlett Johansson didn't really waste any time in taking hers right to court. Now, uh, a couple just off the top of my head, we've, this story only broke, you know, a, a few hours ago. I've only had a couple hours to really dive in and digest and think about it. And Disney has since come out with a response as well. Uh, first things first is that I think Scarlett Johansson's in the right. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I think this is going to be kind of an, a paradigm shift if it isn't already. You're going to have language that's going to cover back-end bonuses and take streaming into consideration. I think that's going to be a new industry norm. I'm surprised with a big company like Disney, it wasn't already. The only reason it may not... There, there's a couple reasons why it may not have been in there already. I mean, who could have saw the foresaw the pandemic coming? But Disney's response is where I want to concentrate this. This comes from Brooks Barnes from the New York Times. Uh, Disney gives a, quote, no merit whatsoever response to Johansson's pay lawsuit and calls it, quote, sad and distressing in its callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. How many $10 words and buzzwords can you find in that statement? Disney continued, quote, Disney has fully complied with Miss Johansson's contract and furthermore, the release of Black Widow on Disney Plus with Premier Access has significantly enhanced her ability to earn additional compensation on top of the $20 she has received to date. So if Disney's out there spouting contractual figures and trying to make everyone get angry at the star, you know they know they're in the wrong here. Because if you're going to say Charlotte Johansson got paid $20 million, okay, how much money are you making off Black Widow here? And we all know you're making that off Black Widow. Never mind, it's going to be a lot more than $20 million. Um, short-sighted statement, I think, in, on Disney's part to respond at all. I kind of want to hold back a little analysis mm-hmm. to see how this plays out. I don't think this is going to sniff a trial. I can't imagine it does. For a couple reasons, one of the main ones being what I put on Twitter in that I think this is going to end either way with Scarlett Johansson getting a favorable conclusion. I think she's going to get the money owed to her. I think Disney knows she's going to get the money owed to her, which is why this statement by them to me is baffling. But whether this went through a settlement or a huge prolonged trial... I think Scarlett Johansson ends up getting that money either way. So Mm -hmm. why would Disney put themselves through this unless they just want to batter Johansson with legal fees, which would not be a good look for them in the the headlines? 
So my immediate reaction to it, and I, and I'm gonna mostly lay back like you because I, I don't I haven't researched it, and nor do I have the eight years of schooling like you do to do mm-hmm. so. But basically, it, it sounded like you know what does it cost them to have a lawyer spout off, see if he can maybe get public opinion on his side or some of it, and take a chance. But it seems like almost a hail mary right out of the box. Well, oh my God, look at this movie star who made twenty million and. Um, and she's crying for more money, and and of course that's not going to play because we we've seen these negotiations happen uh, with uh, WB and Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman eighty four, right? I mean, we saw we basically that played out in like a couple hours, where at the end of it, WB caved into uh, Gal Gadot and uh, and director Patty Jenkins there, and basically gave up a better deal on the next sequel right and they they, Mm -hmm. i'm sure they made good on it it sounds like anyway because uh they signed up for the next sequel the two of them so like you said paramount they've already cut new deals i'm surprised disney didn't cut new deals here maybe they tried and scarlett johansson was uh she didn't want to do it and i i get why i get why that is because it's the 60 million plus all going to disney that she's probably not seeing a penny of yeah, ScarJo's side is saying, look, Disney knew once they pushed this film back that the pandemic was happening, obviously, and that this, they they knew that she had these back-end uh, increases and pay, pay raises uh, worked into her back-end bonus here, and Disney should have known to renegotiate. It was actually assumed that they were always going to renegotiate. My thinking on that is, whether Disney knew or not, I mean... Playing a political game in any sphere, you don't really gain any traction, any ground, any progress towards your side unless you, most times, unless you overreach to begin with. I could see, I don't know if Disney's playing this much 4D chess, but if they want to fight back knowing that the this is an inevitability that these contracts are going to change within the industry, this could be them overreaching in the first place to try and cut back more so in the long run with having to pay more towards out of their streaming money to the actors. Yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but it could be. We grew up in the 90s. We remember all the uh, defense attorneys getting up in front of the microphones. This right. is preposterous. This is right. ludicrous. This is Johnny Cochran kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I had never heard anything more well, that's ridiculous what, I mean, that's in my what entire happened. life. Like, I, yeah. I've sat through, I can't tell you how many trials where the stakes weren't that high, where you know the law. I mean, this is why lawyers get a bad rap. They're just spouting nonsense Liars. because they pretty yeah. much have to. <laughs> Yeah, sure. <laughs> Big loudmouth liars uh, from the 1990s. And oh, look, we have a trailer for House of Gucci to talk about. We were waiting all day, Michael. And uh, we, we expected just kind of the talk about this at the top of the show before the Black Widow news dropped. But uh, I, yeah, this is quite the trailer. This is almost an overstuffed House of Gucci trailer. David Ehrlich. <laughs> tweeted that Adam Driver is going to win an Oscar for playing Waluigi. And that's better. That's a better synopsis of this trailer than anything I'm going to put out here in the next few minutes, but I'll try. So these accents are something, huh? Yeah, the accents aren't great. <laughs> I, I will say this. Uh, Gaga's is better than some of the others. It's better than Adam Driver's. <laughs> Adam Driver's is not good. I'm surprised he's I want to know, yeah. speaking of the contract and paperwork, like, did Ridley Scott have everyone sign waivers that they weren't allowed to partake in his films anymore unless they're doing ridiculous accents? Because The Last Duel is something we talked about, and we're going to talk about it a couple more times in this episode. Now we have this one, both by Ridley Scott, both supposed to be awards contenders, both featuring some people with some heavy accents that don't 
speak normally in those accents, let's say. Yeah, but I, I really hope Adam Driver has the same lines in both movies somehow. <laughs> in both accents could that happen for us that would be wouldn't great. we love that it's just like that he's, he's, you know drinking coffee or whatever they had coffee right in the middle ages i don't even know yeah sure michael i i think i think adam driver is on the sidelines of this trailer though this was more about gaga <laughs> Good thing. yeah my, this trailer was about all about gaga here so like i mean adam's he looks like a supporting character and uh, amidst the uh, a cast of supporting characters that are so much bigger than life. I mean, the Jared Leto makeup aside, you know, he's got big eyes throughout the trailer, cracking jokes. You got, you know, Al Pacino himself with an accent that he's doing okay with. Uh, he's, it's strange that he doesn't nail the Italian accent, but there it is. Uh, and <laughs> Salma Hayek was not allowed to speak for this trailer for some crazy right. reason. She was, you know, a supporting actress pick by one of the two of us. I won't mention who now, but... <laughs> So I basically feel like I, I'm a little surprised. I expected more Adam Driver in this trailer. Could you imagine if this was two and a half minutes of Adam Driver with that accent from the one line of dialogue we do get him saying? I don't think I'd be able to take it seriously. Yeah, so maybe that's a problem. Maybe, but, maybe it's self-preservation on the House of Gucci's part. But let, All right, so let's talk about the structure of the trailer, though, because we do have the opening shots that look like a fragrance commercial. Didn't you expect, yes. like... Gucci by Laura. Wanted Gooch. Elizabeth Taylor to come walking in at some point. I thought that was. I, I didn't know it was the trailer. I was like, wait a minute, is, is this? Are they selling fragrance? I'm like, this is genius. They're selling fragrance immediately. <laughs> it's, got, uh, it's got a Christmas theme too. All the background, all the title cards were looked like a present. They were green background with a red stripe, like a ribbon going through it. I, I like that. I, yeah, I, don't know I if think that's purposeful. I think it's it's kind of on the verge of tacky and. And uh, sh- chic, like <laughs> Jared Leto says in the trailer, and that's why that's I, I I want a big fat dumb Italian movie here, Mike. And I didn't know if I was going to get that <laughs> with House of Gucci. I thought it could be Phantom Thread and just too fashionable for me. But no, mm-hmm. I wanted as an Italian, I wanted the schnozzes to be big, I wanted the tans to be real, and the hair to be frizzy. And I got all of that in this trailer, despite you, the brand name. You wanted the many saints of Newark in the House of Gucci. <laughs> We are both in the middle of a big, fat Sopranos rewatch. You're further along than me. Yes. And the fact that we're getting this right now, the fact that the Yankees are trading for Italian in, infield mm-hmm. and outfielders, two and two nights. The fact you that saw that meme too, huh? I'm eating pizza, and I, I'm feeling uh, it's NBA draft night, and we're still recording, and House of Gucci trailer. I wear my hair slicked back now. Look at the, the Italian-ness of this uh, week is just it's getting to me i'm really i'm really starting to en- en- enjoy all the gooch of this Go- house of gucci trailer <laughs> <laughs> all the gooch came in second when we were picking the name for our podcast by the way um so this trailer is uh, i mean this movie this trailer suggests is a lady gaga star vehicle yeah i i mean can I you mean, imagine if she finds an excuse to sing Right. And, and in the way where she was sh- kind of sharing the spotlight with Bradley Cooper and it was Bradley Cooper's movie, this seems to be all, at least by the looks of this trailer again, this is Lady Gaga's movie. She's the center of attention. She's in almost every shot. She's the one with the punchline at the end saying, you know, I'm not an ethical person, but I'm fair as she slowly drinks her cappuccino with her Expression, left hand, please. which Jazz yeah. Tangway made a made a big deal about. And I, as a fellow lefty, had a happiness in my heart to see as well. Are you really so, a lefty? I never knew that. Oh, yeah, man. I big knew lefty. you were That's a why weird. My, my options to play around the diamond were very limited. I had to be a first baseman. Oh, 
Always been big and always been left-handed. Yeah, that's a, that explains a lot. It really does. You're welcome. But you're right. She did drink her espresso <laughs> with her left hand. She did have how many hairstyles in the trailer? How mm-hmm. many? How many outfits? I mean, right. Jesus Christ! I mean, I, I'm I'm in for a movie like this, no matter what reviews it gets, no matter how many mocking tweets are put out there by Jared Leto's makeup. And I will say this: when it when it's there in front of us, uh, I mean, again, it's on my laptop screen. We'll see if it holds up to the big screen. But when it's there in front of my eyes on the screen, I don't like notice it like it's terrible, like it's Andrew Garfield from The Eyes of Tammy Faye bad. It it, it looked no blended nothing, in. No, yeah, no. Nothing in there. This looks good. It looks exactly... I mean, yes, there are stuff that does look tacky or over the top or whatever kind of adjective you want to put in there to say that it's excess. But like you said when we were talking about it before we hit record, so are the 90s. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's what the 90s were. So I think it fits exactly in with uh, with what this movie seems to be going for. You got, the, you got the Ridley Stock, Scott Golden Filters. Uh, I'm in. Mm-hmm. That cinematography looks beautiful, both this and The Last Duel. So... Yeah, a lot of trailers Blondie today. Too, right? Good start. That's right. We did. We did get a. a was that Blondie's version? I don't even know. I believe it was, Heart but glass. don't hold me to it. So, but that I would I be refreshed it. if it's Blondie's version and yes. they just played the hit song. Like so many of these trailers, not you know, reduxing the songs. Not Jared Leto in a slowed down Blondie cover. Yeah. Yeah. So if that's just regular Blondie, I, I, it worked perfectly, I thought. All right, so let's move right along. We have another contender trailer, at least what we think will be a contender, or we thought would be a contender each of the last two years. King Richard, we finally get our first look at Will Smith playing the patriarch of the famous tennis-playing Williams family. And we have our first mirror shot, Michael. We get a, our, our first actual Oscar contender preview holding a mirror shot and we famously love mirror shots in movies because that's how you know you have something that is reaching for oscars prominence it was also a mirror shot in the sense that i saw myself in his teary eyes (laughs) i am a coach (laughs) i i loved some of the good coaching in this trailer i'm sure he's gonna have some bad coaching in this movie as uh it, it looks like he does push the kids too far at least from the opening scene of the trailer which was the supposition mike that we were going into this movie with that he got, you know, he, he, he crossed the line or two with, I mean, that, that's what we figured going in. We're going to see a story of Earl Woods pushing tiger too hard, pushing the Williams sisters too hard. And they dealt with it head on in the first scene of this first trailer, which I loved. And then we just got a great rousing sports story, a father daughter story after that with some comedy and some great and a great performance. Good God. Mirror shot included. This was so Oscar grabby and I don't care. I loved it. (laughs) I hope they don't gloss over the, controversy and the hardship and the the tough especially in light of what's going on with you know Simone Biles and all the athletics uh, a bunch of pro athletes talking about their mental health issues and stuff like that and their formative I really hope they don't gloss over that in this they kind of do put a focus on it because that's where I would think a lot of the drama of this story would unfold anyway I mean who knows what's been okayed by the Williams estate to be shown here and and whatever I don't know but uh, I agree in that I want to see that but I hope it's, I don't know. I, I felt a little like it was rushed in the trailer. And it is just a trailer. It's a preview. So who knows what that means for the actual runtime of the movie. But I get a, like a sick feeling that like Will Smith doesn't want to be seen in too negative a light. And I hope it's not one of those things. Because we've seen him go for an Oscar grabby performance before in Concussion, where there wasn't much to criticize about his character and it hurt him. 
Well, he c- correct. He's had the Tom Cruise career mm-hmm. uh, in a in a way where he's played these iconic characters, these these uh, characters that are a bit beyond reproach, mm-hmm. at least at the end of their storylines. And I I do think t- some of the best performances by Tom Cruise, for instance, is where he played some of his uh, his worst people. Now, you're right. We don't know if the movie's going to. You take it head on, or if this is going to be more of a puff piece, we don't we don't know that. But I do know the trailer had child services in that first scene at the yeah. house. Now it was a vehicle for his tell off scene, which was a great tell off scene right then and there. Of course, right. we pushed these kids hard. I mean, it was awesome. And then you know we'd see glimpses of him like laying flat on the tennis court. Did he pass out? Did he have a heart attack? What the hell was that all about? The kids are just walking away. Like I, I mean, did he did he fake passing mm-hmm. out? I mean, it seems like he goes too far just based on the what we the evidence we see in the trailer. But yeah, I don't know. I just I saw a I saw an awesome sports movie in this trailer. I saw a I saw a rousing story about true to life legends on the court there, right. and the girls did a nice job acting opposite Will Smith, who's going off. Mike mirror yeah. shot, teary eyed shot. That, that I had tears in my eyes watching him. You know, coach his kids up like that. Yeah, this is pretty much everything, at least as far as like our predictions of Will Smith being an Oscar contender. This is probably everything we could have hoped it would be. And I, I don't see any reason why anyone would be less excited about that potential outcome for him here after seeing this trailer. I mean, this pretty much chalks itself and lines itself up almost exactly as to what I kind of expected to see in terms of a first look for King Richard after, what, two years now of waiting. I'm excited for it. I can't. I really yeah. can't wait to see it. If you put it in front of me right now, I'd click play. I'd stop recording with you, and I'd watch it. I'd be happy to do so. Michael, well, in that light, it wouldn't take much to do that on either side. I think, but yeah. If there was a sandwich here, well, see, I was just I'd... gonna say, it. just gonna make a sandwich joke. Oh, we've been doing this too long. Go ahead. Well, here's something that we've been, you know, shouting out for too long as well. The card counter from Paul Schrader, Michael. This is up your alley. It would have seemed before. Before we caught a glimpse of this trailer, yeah. because it's about gambling, it's about tilting. Can you explain what that is, tilting? <laughs> All too well, my friend. <laughs> All too well. Yeah, Going on tilt is when you uh, make a couple bad bets or maybe one really big bad bet in a row, and you just throw all kinds of money that you may or may not have against the wall, hoping to chase that bad bet and cancel it out, and that's called uh. going on tilt. And it's not good. It's not healthy, and it's not mentally stable. I've never been there, but I have friends. <laughs> David um, Long's never been there either. He has friends. <laughs> no, he's in, his, he's, he's in a fetal position right now. Oh, God. You think the casting director for this went to Oscar Isaac and was like, look, I need you to be John Bernthal. And then Oscar Isaac went and became more John Bernthal than John Bernthal ever was in his life. So you, yeah. So so basically he just lost the sideburns and you think that's John Bernthal. (laughs) You you didn't see, you didn't get a John Bernthal vibe from Oscar Isaac in this, in this trailer. Is your eyesight that bad? Wait a said, said the man who thought yeah, Allison Brie was in the James Wan yeah, movie last exactly. week. Exactly. And I don't mean his look. I just mean like his essence and his presence and all. I, I don't know. And in terms of maybe John Bernthal is, is who I wanted, I'm, I'm confused by some of these character actions. Mm. I, Tiffany Haddish came off as a little cartoony for me for the role that she's playing here. I don't know if that was universal or if that's just a me problem. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I think the trailer did a bad job of leading us into these characters and who they are, their personalities, because, you know, uh, Oscar Isaac is like a, like, 
you know, he has these ticks where he puts cloth around every piece of furniture in the house, and he's mm. like true detective Matthew McConaughey, just staring in a mirror, and uh, you know, visualizing his card counting or whatever, looking like a, a monk before he's mouthing off and he's got all these coy little one-liners in the rest of the trailer and then you're right him and tiffany havish have this rep repartee and it, like what it's like four different movies in this trailer yeah. i i have developed a trust with paul schrader that he's going to make a cohesive film a cohesive sure. story even if it's kind of a grimy one or even if it's something that drives me up a wall which is typically mm-hmm. is with him going right. from bringing out the dead scorsese movies obviously he's dealt with the, the descent into madness film throughout his career so i'm not saying he can't make it work here but mike there's a ton of story baggage that seems just to be dumped right on our heads in this trailer war veteran imprisoned yeah he's got the ticks we got the going on tilt opening of the trailer if like this 15 20 second opening was the whole trailer with that cool music i'm more into this but it seems like we got a couple movies here yeah it was weird tonal shifts and like scrunched into this 30 second frame of this trailer where it goes from something like rounders to uh, we have this Barry type story where he's ex military till this taken slash three billboards type thing where they're doing this road trip to uh, to get back at someone at the end of of the 30 second span here. It's I'm not worried. I like you. I have confidence in Paul Schrader, but I'm less confident knowing how off track Schrader is willing to get anyway. I'm scared. Yeah. I'm scared too. I I think there's reason (laughs) for concern. (laughs) How much is they going to show? I mean, I, well, I just I thought we were getting a gambling movie. I didn't think we were getting right. born identity stuff right. going on. Same, yeah, same, yeah. That that's a little strange. Speaking of strange, though, Michael, yeah. we have a twenty four's Lamb. This is Numi Rapace of Prometheus. <laughs> this is Icelandic. This is from Cannes. This is a new trailer with an added thirty seconds of footage or so uh, that that we did see when we were v- reviewing the Cannes trailer. So, what do you think of Lamb? Boy, that's one gorgeous dog. No, uh, <laughs> what? How, how is this not the Paul Schrader movie? Uh, this one looks just so bizarre. And again, yeah, we, we've previewed this a couple times. You mentioned how it kind of gives off this unintentional comedic tone. But every review I've seen of it thus far, it, it certainly doesn't say that it's a comedic movie. I don't understand the story they're trying to tell here. So does, the, does Numi Rapace birth the lamb? And then... There's all this suspense that this hybrid manimal yeah. abomination may actually be evil. Like, who was that supposed to be a surprise Paddington to? Three. Bah! <laughs> no, who I, would I, be shocked that that's an evil being? No, I think the lamb births the half human, half lamb, which is ba- again, it's much more human than lamb. So again, recessive genes, sheep here. Uh, Look, I I think uh, Numi birthed uh, Xenomorph derivative (laughs) when last we saw her (laughs) at at a big movie, right? So, no, I I don't think the woman births anybody. I think uh, Numi is a stepmom here, and that sheep, the real mom, is she wants to rear her child. She doesn't want Numi to, you know. Oh, that's the the, the revenge of the sheep type thing going on here? We got a serious... Yeah, Battle of the Moms going on. Herd of sheep crashing through this wooden... uh, The shots in this look great, by the way. The cinematography, the wide open space of the outdoors and stuff. I thought everything looked good except for that one shot where there's these... There's a bundle of sheep trying to force their way through this, like, split wood in the stable there. I I thought that looked a little little hokey. But yeah, I mean, why... 
you know, why not? There's something bizarrely <laughs> fitting for the movie about evil Lamb Thanos here winning at the Oscars. So I do hope this does compete for international feature. We just said, how dare an Oscar-nominated screenwriter write a, uh, you know, war backstory. And here we, are, here we are like, yeah, half lamb, half kid, 824. I'm down. Why not? Why not? I'm in for that story. How? Look, I, the two shots in this, this trailer that make me think your way because it's something so different mm-hmm. and we're idiots but the the reason why i'm with you on this is the stare down between numi and sheep mama those are mamas going at it but the second stare down is between numi and the hilariously detached husband who they have a stare down <laughs> and you just know what's being communicated in that stare down like Did you bang oh. that sheep yeah it's just like Oh, so that's where you've been every night. Right. Instead of <laughs> mourning. The stables our... have been loud over yeah. there the last couple of weeks. Instead of mourning our cemetery of crosses. Oh, my God. The you humanity. banging those sheep? Yeah. Are you this... banging those sheep? They got to have Robert De Niro doing this. I think Colby sent a tweet out. He's like, how is everybody so excited for this as like a serious, in a serious way? And I just want Colby, I want you to know, I want everybody to know, we were laughing at this movie like three weeks before Can ever happened. Yeah. And we're yeah. still laughing about it now. Uh, so we're with you, my friend. I don't know how this is going to pull off being a serious drama. I don't God know bless either. it if it does. Well, that's the thing. If this guy, Val- Valdemar Johansson, if this Icelandic director nails this for some reason, right. and we're weeping <laughs> at the end of it and just rooting for this freaking lamb-headed kid. That's the best movie about a man banging a sheep i ever seen. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to see it. That's for sure. Lamb. <laughs> Take that, everyone who thinks movies fall into genres. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on to The Night House. This is Rebecca Hall. This is an August 20th release from David Bruckner, the director of Southbound and The Ritual. Mike, what'd you think of The Night House? I think someone needs to tell the company that cut James Wan's malignant trailer that we covered last week that this is how you make something look like an homage to Jallo filmmaking and its marketing. This is not a Jallo, you knucklehead. (laughs) There's no band named Goblin here. You know, you know that's not the only thing that makes a right. Like, this is the second time you're protesting the idea of a Jalo directly linking it to the lack of goblin. I could think of no argument that would discredit us faster than us having an argument over what is and what is not a Jalo about this trailer. Well, it looked bright. I mean, there was there was that that bright vibrancy of the weird looks going on and the weird uh, the, the the body floating in the middle of this blood red background and stuff like that <laughs> that, that seemed more in line with basically when I say, think it's Jalo I think okay would this fit in a Dario Argento movie and uh-huh. I, there's more here than I think was in the Malignant trailer you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But I didn't see a bird with a crystal plumage. I didn't see any red painted blood. I didn't see any slasher serial murderer. Um, I, I saw a ghost built on like another very scary, disturbing real life premise, though, Mike. Like this is a deeply disturbing tragedy to get serious for a minute where you have the husband's suicide, where you have his suicide note ringing throughout the entire trailer here, haunting her to mm. the point where she's chanting it just on, on the bed alone, pushing her into this madness or into another dimension, as, as you write down here. 
Yeah, I don't know exactly what's going on with this one. Uh, we got some kind of... I know you said you've never seen the movie Triangle, right? No, in 2009, I, I think is. it is. It, it's it's kind of giving off those types of vibes to me. It's it's like an interdimensional type thing or this time loop hmm. type thing going on where our protagonist kind of... We follow the protagonist, but she's finding herself in other areas as well, and she's kind of reliving the same moment that's going on. That's kind of what we got in this trailer, whereas Rebecca Hall enters this room, the camera pans around, and then we go back to the entering of the room where Rebecca Hall's walking in again. And Mm -hmm. I I don't know if that's kind of subtext for her reliving the trauma that she's experiencing uh, as a result of her husband leaving that note or what's going on, but it it gave me very, very vivid uh, flashbacks of of a triangle movie, but I'm very interested in this. And I'm interested in anything Rebecca Hall does in the the drama, suspense, thriller genre. I think that's her sweet spot. I hope she never leaves there. I really loved uh, the Awakening a couple years back. It was like a haunted the hospital, a haunted hospital movie. It was just kind of like a, a pleasant surprise discovery for me. So I have to, I have to look up Triangle and check it out. There, I know I haven't seen it. it uh, if it's WWE Entertainment, I'm not watching it. I it is have, not. It is. Uh, you're free and clear there. <laughs> but you're, you're right. You said something about Rebecca Hall being someone that we just should seek out at this moment, and especially. You know, being in suspense films, like uh, she's done a great job in them. Uh, she's got uh, Passing coming out this year, which I thought was very strong. And, yeah, I'm, I'm all in on the Rebecca Hall train here. Yeah, she's great at relaying that panic and intensity in those types of movies. So uh, it looks like another winner for her here. I'm excited to see this one. So that's The Night House. Let's talk about Ghostbusters Afterlife. We had a trailer a couple months back, I think, during the pandemic, maybe even mm-hmm. before the pandemic. Then we've been getting, like, little teaser things with uh, tiny marshmallow men and whatnot. <laughs> and now we get a, our, our second or third full trailer, Mike, to Ghostbusters Afterlife. What'd you think? I want the women from the 2016 reboot or whatever you call that, the 2016 Ghostbusters movie, to be in this, but you don't think they're going to be? No, I, I don't think. I think we've retconned past it. I think uh, uh, I think we basically lost Hillary the election with our <laughs> response. To the fact that we didn't love that movie enough cost. I don't us. like the I don't like the retconning. I don't like the doing away with it in lieu of this being the Neither real Ghostbusters reboot. I think that's just rude and that's uh, you know these major studios kind of giving in to the twitter outrage machine we saw it with wb doing the snyder cut where they basically had to film the snyder cut before releasing the snyder cut and ghostbusters is kind of doing the same thing here now with this property as well i i I think that's just a bad precedent leaves a bad taste in my mouth because it comes from a place of toxicity yeah, it, there's definitely some toxicity there. I still think the movie sucked, the Ghostbusters. Which is reboot. fine. I mean, you're, you're you're inclined to know. You know, it being not a great movie is one thing, but it was getting killed not for not being a great movie. It was getting killed before it even right. debuted or before anyone even saw it because there were women Ghostbusters. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree with the toxicity being toxic and staying mm. away from it and putting the label on those uh, barrels and throwing them in. Hopefully space. Get them out of our ecosystem. But all right, I'll I'll quibble with some things in this trailer, though, to get back on track. Ghostbusters Afterlife, they, you know, resurrect the station wagon from the 1970s because I believe it was an old station wagon when they resurrected it in the 80s. So this is Mm -hmm. an old ass car, Michael. You Mm -hmm. can't drive that car through a field. I mean, there are (laughs) there are rocks and roots and. You know, sticks and bones. Yeah, but you don't buy you don't buy Finn Wolfhard, genius engineer at thirteen. <laughs> you can't drive any car like that through a huge field. I mean, that's just like a 
I mean, there's no, you can't even get AAA out there. They're in bumfuck nowhere. <laughs> it's just absurd. What are they joyriding? It's not a horse. It's a, mm. it's a 1970s station wagon. How did they even get it up and running? They go three feet, the engine craps out, and the kids just leave it there. That's how the real story of this goes. That's how the real story would have gone. But I have so many questions about this whole world, Michael, because how do you rationalize what happened? I mean, the earth-changing, giant mm. spectacles of the first two Ghostbuster movies that they're not retconning because we're mm-hmm. going with the OGs, right? Right. How do you how do you put those into historical context? Those events. I mean, do people write them off as hoaxes? Like, how is it? How is Dan Aykroyd's character not like running the FBI or the right. CIA or a huge right. branch of something very important? How is he just working at some pawn shop somewhere, right. picking like up the clearly, phone at the end of it? He's not a conspiracy theorist. He's a guy who actually saved Manhattan. Right. Uh, you know, they're good questions, and they're obviously bringing back the. It's like a greatest hits of all the Ghostbusters. You talked about the mini Stay Puft Marshmallow Men, who I could watch burn themselves alive <laughs> gleefully all day, by the way. I, I, I giggle funny. every time that comes. But we saw like a baby Slimer, too, I think, or something like that that's in this. So they're obviously going through. I wonder if we're going to get Zool. I wonder if he'll make an appearance. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's a, I have a lot of questions about the Ghostbusters just in general. I, I really, it really sticks in my craw that they're just completely overlooking and doing away with the 2016 uh, movie. They could have paid homage to that. They could have recognized that. I hope they still do. They might, but I, I don't. I don't like. I have a bad taste in my mouth about this movie right now. Yeah, uh, I, I'm with you. I'm hoping it's going to work because uh, Jason Reitman's a, a really strong director. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I love Carrie Coon. I, Finn Wolfhard's mm-hmm. a really uh, strong actor, young actor. I like the fact that we got kid Ghostbusters. I mean, that's a that's a way yep, to go that's cool. here. That's like good. That. Uh, I don't necessarily need Paul Rudd as the <laughs> whatever he is, this silly science teacher. He's just going to be running away from CGI. This that's whole movie, how they right? knew. Like they knew they were up against it, so they're like, we need to get the most likable person in Hollywood to helm this. Yeah, and, and how? Paul Rudd. Yeah, how is Paul Rudd and Carrie Coon? How are they single? Like, this always bothers me. Always. It's like poor John Hamm and Emily Blunt. Right, single. Right. And nobody loves them. Nobody against will even the, look at them. Against the Ireland waterfront. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a break. The most romantic looking place in the world. Jamie Dornan. Single. Is de- deathly single. There's a movie. It's just like watching those people in those types of situations go on dates and just not being satisfied ever. Yeah. It turn out that they're not just these Hollywood heartthrobs. They're actually jerks with way too high standards. That yeah, that should be the case. They should we should we should you know meet those people. What we shouldn't meet these Her big perfect toe parents. Was a little too long for my like. Shut up, this John Ham. Perfect parents and this charming man who can't you deserve to be alone, John Ham. Yeah. I agree. I mean, Paul Rudd should be Ignatius J. Riley in an awkward edit. I had to look up the name from uh, the character of the Confederacy of Dunces, Mike. Do you ever read that book back in the day where he no. was just an asshole? <laughs> and he was single for those reasons. Like us. We're assholes. Yeah. I, we're single for those I reasons. I would watch that movie. If it's like John Hamm, who's who's a nice guy, but he's just... <laughs> By the way, John Hamm's not in this movie. I don't know no. why he's getting all the shit. Well, from because us, of the yeah Irish movie, yeah. <laughs> but it's just John Hamm going on dates and just being a real jerk and getting what he deserves. There's your cathartic movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you, Mike. Uh, there was a new Vivo trailer. Did Did you watch this one? I did watch this one. Okay. It was cute. It was. It was adorable. It had the same song that we saw the entire th- you know performance of. 
last week in that five-minute clip. Uh, that song was wonderful, worked in mm-hmm. perfectly here. It's in my head. It'll always be in my head and my heart <laughs> after that, uh, after this first full trailer, I think, too. But Something look, John I think, Hamm's incapable of, yeah. Yeah, but I think this Vivo trailer, this new Vivo trailer. You just got what I said. <laughs> yeah, a delayed reaction, but... This new Vivo trailer is hilarious as well. That girl is adorable and hilarious. She's got like three great jokes in it. So that pushes this to another level now for me in terms of if we're going to have a movie from Sony that's going to be this funny. The last time we had yeah. that, you know, they w- they took the award without a Pixar film. or, or I think they did beat a Pixar film, right? Spider-Verse? Built beat Incredibles uh, too. They yeah. no, they built they beat. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm sorry, you're absolutely right. Yeah, they beat Incredibles too. You're absolutely right. My big conspiracy about the Academy Museum, notwithstanding. That's right. Uh, yeah, so, they beat Incredibles too, and they beat Disney as well with uh, Wreck It Ralph too. I think right. But yeah, Vivo could go at Encanto here. Could go sure. at Disney Animation. Or and Pixar. I'm with you. I was laughing. There's a couple legitimately funny parts in this trailer alone. Uh, it's absolutely adorable with Lin Manuel Miranda playing that little. I forget what the name of the animal was. They have a whole explanation in the trailer right. uh, as well. But it seems like it's. we were wondering if this is like a Stewie from Family Guy situation. It seems like everybody can understand Lin-Manuel Miranda now. We have that confirmed, right? I mean, there's multiple people being, talking to him. Yeah, Right. Everybody's so, talking to him. So it has so to be. So, yeah, my hopes are high. My <laughs> hopes have been high for Netflix animated films. Uh, to know that Sony's behind this originally makes me feel a little better considering how Netflix has done in the animated world uh, left to their own devices. They haven't really shattered that Academy glass ceiling yet to really contend with the likes of Pixar and Disney, but maybe this can be the one that finally gets them there. And I I'm hopeful that it is. Well, they're doing a great job marketing Vivo right now, Netflix. So props uh, hats off to them. Uh, Michael, let's uh, move into some film festival news. We got a lot of it. We're going to kind of do a bit of a rundown of the full Venice lineup here. Uh, This, of course, is the 78th Venice Film Festival. It'll occur from September 1st through September 12th of this year, 2021. We got a a jury headed by Bong Joon-ho with Chloe Zhao, etc. Cynthia Erivo on that jury. We have... Some high-profile films premiering out of competition. Dune, first of all, is getting its world premiere in Venice this year. It's getting its IMAX premiere in Toronto. And Denis Villeneuve is going to get a a tribute there at Toronto. So we might have been a little worried that Dune wasn't in that first rollout, but it got its own day uh, last week after after the big TIFF first rollout there. Chloe Zhao and Bong Joon-ho... And Cynthia Erivo, by the way, being on the same jury, can they just make a movie together while they're there? Like, what if that was a competition for these film festivals going forward? We're going to hire a bunch of uber-famous and successful filmmakers and actors, and as part of their being on the jury, they have to create and debut a short film by the end of the festival. Tell me who wouldn't <laughs> sign up to see that. But uh, totally. to, to get on your Dune point, never mind my inane tangents and rambling there, I swear to God, one of these days I'm going to see something on Twitter from a critic and actually write it down because much in the same vein where I said, I know somebody got their hands on Dune last week, but I can't remember who. And they said it was all it's cracked up to be. Ten minutes. I know yeah. somebody said that you have to see this in IMAX as well. And I can't remember who and I didn't write it down because I'm irresponsible that way. But I remember seeing taking note of that of somebody saying you have to see this in IMAX. It deserves to be seen, blah, blah, blah. And that stuck out to me. So to see this getting its its rollout uh, for its IMAX premiere in Toronto, I think that's that's proper. And I think that's only going to help its marketing. I think they've corrected their ship overall in terms of marketing Dune properly. I mean, there was that kind of hiccup with that 
first second trailer of Dune, I guess we can call it. But ever since that, they've they've released that two A trailer or whatever you want to call it. Now they're doing this with Tiff. I think they've kind of properly righted the ship. And the Tiff, I, I didn't write them down, but I was looking through the the Tiff honorees of previous years and the tribute awards, mm-hmm. and they matter. You know, it's it's kind of like a an introduction into award season many a time. So Denis Villeneuve won't be eligible for the DGA. I don't know if we went over that story. I think we did, right? I think we mentioned it in passing once the one uh, episode. We've had so many Oscar race checkpoints lately. There's been so much news catching up from the fallout (laughs) of last year and setting up 2022 that everything's running together at this point. It's very true. Uh, Speaking of old episodes, we did cover the Halloween kills is going to uh, Venice story. And uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, Roberto Benigni, They'll be the two receiving lifetime achievement Golden Lions. Uh, so Halloween kills in this official rollout, Michael. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I mean I can't. I'm very very thrilled. I'm excited to see how this plays at various film festivals. I'm very curious to see the Venice reaction specifically to mm. Halloween kills. I wonder how many will call it a giallo for no apparent reason. <laughs> Michael, Ridley Scott's The Last Duel is going to get an out-of-competition spot at Venice, uh, and we know a certain somebody may take a certain somebody else there on a yacht. Oh, boy. <laughs> what did you What did you think of Benefer? Were you all into this? Uh, I, I think we should call it a different name now with the second iteration, but I was like almost... I was almost wondering if it was a hoax or what the hell was going on, Benefer. Has anyone two. checked on A Rod lately? Because that's, that's your first response. Yeah, well, honestly, it's got nothing to do with me being a Yankees fan. But the day after J Lo and Ben were rumored to be getting back together, A Rod put this like heart wrenching story out on oh. on his Instagram story of like just. He was in his room and he was playing like listen to your heart in the background and he was like the camera was showing pictures of him and Jen and he tagged J Lo and like Oh I, no. I was like, Jesus Christ, man, pull it together. <laughs> so, yes, that is my first thought. I hope he's okay. Oh my god. Yeah. He's it like, was I I even tweeted about it at the time. I didn't want to like call him out. I didn't tag him or I was just like, hey man, is is Alex Rodriguez okay? <laughs> I'm surprised by you. I mean, thank God he won in 2009. He won. Right. He won you that championship in 2009. Otherwise, you'd be sending him like yes, you know mixtapes of the Cure. That's true. Just trying to exacerbate a, a situation. I would make this about me. There's no doubt. Sending him like you know, sending Carl Anthony Towns things where he should just you know come to the Knicks or something. How can Benefer be about me? Is the question that I need to answer. So there's that added element to the Last Duel's Venice premiere. There's also uh, the fact that we got a story that I think is heartening, Mike, because we've been covering the last duel, worried about its premise, and that you know these two guys are going to be covering this particular story. But now yeah. we've learned that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck they only wrote the parts of the script, which is going to be like a Rashomon flashback structure in this script. They only wrote the man, the male parts of this story, whereas Nicole Hall of Center, the writer of Can You Ever Forgive Me. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et Enough said, I believe, was her other big one. There, Nicole Holoff Center wrote the part for Jodie Comer's character uh, in this last duel story, and I think that becomes a little evident when you do even just watch the first trailer that we reviewed last week of the last duel. In that, hmm. I think some of our concerns 
about the Jodie Comer character were eased in that trailer alone. So to know that Nicole Hall of Center might be responsible for the entirety of that character, who I we both are on record saying we hope is the main character of this story, and the story we hope is told completely through her lens. We'll see if that happens, but I, that that makes sense that that's being handled by somebody of the talent and character uh, integrity of Nicole Hall of Center. Yeah. Uh, Last Night in Soho, still going to Venice. It's also going to TIFF, I believe. And uh, we have also out of competition their closing night film. They're opening with uh, Madre's Paralelas. Uh, But we have Il Bambino Noscotto, Michael. That's going to be my nickname in high school. (laughs) I got nothing on this. The little baby Noscotto. (laughs) I have absolutely no take on that. Yeah, I have no idea. Robert I am Ando. a professional. <laughs> I, I have no. I tried to look up. Uh, he has. He has no footprint really on Wikipedia either. He's just an Italian filmmaker. It's like his fifth or sixth film. So I hope he just made a really good movie, and we'll get to see it. I hope it's about Babe Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. All right, let's get we get our laughs out because we have we have a a, a rough story here again with the fall film festival slate, Mike. Because we have quote a setback for female filmmakers. Yeah, a setback. Sure. Yeah, uh, the Hollywood Reporter Scott Roxborough covered the story and he wrote quote female filmmakers, however, maybe may have been more negatively impacted by the pandemic and uh, Barbara who I believe is the president of Venice, he said, uh, noting that there were just five female filmmakers in the Venice 2021 competition compared to eight last year uh, and saw the development as a temporary, quote, temporary setback that he hoped the percentage of female directors would bounce back next year. (sighs) So he's full of shit. This is rough because they just came off a year where they had more female filmmakers than ever. And Mm -hmm. now we get this. This is the same guy that was on record a couple of years ago when being questioned about the film, female filmmakers and the lack thereof in Venice saying, oh, we don't really concentrate on that. We just pick the best films. So yeah. I, like, I'm getting tired of talking about this every year with Venice specifically, and I wish their approach to highlighting and promoting female-directed films was as creative and progressive as Barbara's PR has become to spin how this isn't actually sexism on their part at all. Yeah. It's 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 BS. Uh, France in general has a poor reputation with regards to women home movies. We've gone over that a lot actually on this uh, show ourselves. But it's the worst of it is shown, I think, in Venice, and it's routinely shown to be the worst of it in Venice. There's no setback of any kind here. I mean, all things being equal, in a regular year, Venice's status quo for their film festival is to show preference to male-made films. Uh, In 2017, there was one female-directed film in competition. I think the number was one out of 21. There was one in competition again in 2018. I think it was one out of 21. They increased that number by 100% and had a whole two films in competition that were directed by females in 2019. And then the pandemic hit, and they were desperate for films, and they actually selected eight of their 18 competition films being from female directors, and they got all this positive praise and press. If you go back and Google, just Google Venice 2020 female film directors, there's all kinds of articles written about how they're near, near parody, and it's such a great thing, and they're, they're approaching equality, and blah, blah, blah. And what do they do the first chance they can when things are just 
getting somewhat back to normal, because we're not totally back to normal or out of the woods, when things start to go a little bit back to status quo, we're right back down to less than 25% or less than a quarter of 5 out of 21 films in competition being from female. I mean, this is this is year after year with this film festival. It's inexcusable. Yeah, I, you said it, man. I, I agree with everything you said. And um, it's it's frustrating at the very incredibly least. frustrating I, I mean like it's not hard to the films are out there you know maybe they're not big studio films and maybe they're not the 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 most prominent uh titles and that's in and of itself its own systemic issue that we've talked about tons well of that's times. the thing right it's it is systemic and we sure. saw we saw the reports of the sure. budgets going to male directors so if the budgets the big budgeted films were held back last year and we have a glut of them net coming now, then we, we did. We pr- predicted this. We predicted just by the numbers it probably was going to be a male filmmaker-led backlash or, or glut of films. And it, it is already yeah. it become a narrative throughout these fall film festivals. I think TIFF did much better upon their second wave of announcements than the first, but uh, all, most of their galas and presentations were from male filmmakers so that that's a problem as well but last yeah. year we had nomadland winning venice so it's not like and it's important to note that this is in competition i don't know what the total breakdown is percentage wise of films that are out of competition that are held by but but still i mean if you're competing at venice it, it, the whole point is to shine light on these types of films they're out there they exist this is just a poor job and all they do is pay lip service to how it's not their fault right no, and it's, it gets tiring. This is five years in a row now, I think. Four or well, five four years in a row? Four out of five. Yeah, yeah, four out of five, other than last year. Yeah, right. I agree. And if the pandemic never happened, I mean, he's trying to, Barbara's trying to blame it on the pandemic. If the pandemic never happened, you can bet that it would have been the same thing last year, because there's mm-hmm. no reason to believe it would have changed. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. Uh, let's look at some recent history, though, in terms of the Golden Lion winners here, Mike. We have Nomadland winning it last year from Chloe Zhao. We had uh, Joker in 2019, Roma in 2018, The Shape of Water in 2017. You can go further back to Oscar crossovers like The Wrestler in 20, uh, uh, 2008 and Brokeback Mountain in 2005. Yeah, and this is what part of the frustration is, is that we have two of the last four Best Picture winners played at Venice, and actually it's three of the last four betting favorites going into Oscar Sunday played at Venice, because Roma was the betting favorite for Best Picture going into 2018 uh, through the Oscar night, and they ended up getting upset by Green Book, but again, this is the platform that Venice provides and they could be doing so much good with it. They did last year in the pandemic year and they're just, they're they're not. That's where the frustration comes in. But to underscore something, just speaking strictly about the films that they present, Venice is a big deal because the big players do play there. It does take play its part in kicking off kind of the road to the Oscars and playing its importance in award season all year long. Agreed. And we can go further down their award slate uh, throughout the last 20 years or so in terms of their uh, Volpe Cups and their Best Actor and Actress winners. We have Vanessa Kirby, Pieces of a Woman, Olivia Coleman, and Willem Dafoe in 2018, Emma Stone from La La Land in 2016, Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman from The Master in 2012, Colin Firth, Helen Mirren, Imelda Staunton, a couple more eventual Oscar nominees and uh, an Oscar winner there. So we do have this Oscars track record for this festival and you do have to question their systemic issues, right? Because, because of this platform that they're offering is, is tried and true. It's proven. It works. The film festival circuit works. So yeah, it, it is important to spotlight 
films across the board. It's not it's not right what what's happening here. I don't think, you know, asking for above 25% representation is outlandish in for, in terms of gender equality. I mean, give me a break. No, of course not. Uh we mentioned the opening nighter, Parallel Mothers, uh, from Pedro Almodovar, starring Penelope Cruz. Michael, we got a teaser trailer for Parallel Mothers. What'd you think? So taking things less seriously now, um, we get to these points when we're previewing and reviewing so many non-English-speaking films where I, I, I do a good job of keeping up with them, but I'll mm-hmm. come across one perpetually this happens no doubt i'll come across one and just have absolutely no idea what the hell is going on or what the movie seems like it'll be about or what the movie looks like it's aiming it'll just be totally lost on me and nothing makes me feel like more of an ignorant self-consumed nationalist pig than when those things happen (laughs) and this is one of the am i dumb don't answer this but am i the dumb one here when it comes to this trailer i have no clue what's happening honestly you're you're not because i forgot to watch it oh good okay (laughs) i was living completely through you relying entirely on your eyes big mistake of this trailer (laughs) And I totally forgot to watch it. I totally forgot to go back and check this one out. I put it in the doc, um, but I forgot to watch it. So Good. Well, we're on the same page, and I did watch it. So maybe don't take my word for it and uh, seek have... out people smarter than I. I will retweet it later, and uh, we'll let people be the judge, Good. and I'll watch it later, of Good. course. But let's power through right now. We had the big announcement coming from Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog heading to Venice. We knew this was going to be... Uh, in play it's it got announced as the centerpiece for the new york film festival as well it got uh, a a special presentation added to toronto mike this is benedict cumberbatch thomason mckenzie jesse plemons and kirsten dunce this is 1920s montana and we did get our first still did you check out benedict cumberboo in uh, in the wood in the, in the open field there in the yes. good costume. Yes, it's a it's a beautiful shot. I mean, we don't have much other than him kind of standing against the the backdrop of a big field and some sand dunes in the background. And oh. yep, he looks like he's in the 1920s with that outfit that he's wearing and little fedora action on top of him there. But fedora, I think, that's I think that's a cowboy hat. That's a fedora. I think. Uh, <laughs> I think the power of the dogs playing this very well so far. They're, every couple yeah. of weeks, they're like putting out a new drip of information and slowly building up anticipation for everyone in this space, as if it needs it with the name attached. Never mind the fact that it's Jane Campion's kind of first movie in a long time, so she comes with her own bit of prestige uh, by herself. So I, I think they're playing this well. I'm certainly curious to see how this one is overall, and I, I'm excited for it. A lot of our friends out there are saying. Power of the Dog is perhaps their most anticipated movie yeah. of the fall film festivals. I know Andrew was texting me. He's like, how do we get to the Friday premiere? we got to just go. And I was like, I can't. I know I'm booked that. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, I think uh, Power of the Dog is is situated to run the circuit. And uh, it's got it, it's it's going to be an example of a movie that has the platform and uh, everything's in front of it. So. We'll keep our eyes out. Michael, we reviewed the uh, trailer for Official Competition starring Penelope Cruz, Antonio Banderas, and Oscar Martinez last week. We loved that trailer. Mm-hmm. So that's coming to Venice. We have uh, The Card Counter, which trailer we reviewed in this episode, written and directed by Paul Schrader there with Oscaritis. Uh, Oscaritis, or, uh, which is what we have. Oscaritis is what John Bernthal has. 
John Barenthal. <laughs> is a little not, callback joke. Is not in that trailer. <laughs> I don't know what you see with those eyes. Michael, the hand of God. And I wanted to mention the hand of God from Paolo Sorrentino of, of course, the Oscar winning The Great Beauty because Scott Roxborough covered this story and it's got this new premise. He says the coming of age drama follows a young boy growing up in a tumultuous Naples of the 1980s where personal and social tragedy is countered by the unexpected joy that comes when soccer legend Diego Maradona joins the city's troubled squad. Sorrentino has called The Hand of God his most personal film yet. I can't wait for this. And that personal film thing seems to be all any of these sites know about this movie thus far imdb has the synopsis for this film uh plot unknown set in naples and said to be a very personal film so is this just paolo sorrentino's way of telling us he's just a ginormous soccer fan yeah if this is about a kid who's a huge soccer fan that's great that's great this is not about a kid in naples who's fighting a fish and (laughs) this 20 year old in a cycling contest this is this well, is what this story should be about my heritage here's my concern okay mm-hmm. if i was to interview the rock mm-hmm. on this program it would be very personal and very fulfilling but the good of that interview would be for me <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't do a lot of favors for anybody listening to that show. You understand? So while I respect Paolo Sorrentino's ability to tell this story and its biographical aspects, I wonder if it's going to be all for him. Look, Netflix has uh, benefited from the personal story in terms of an Oscars context from Alfonso Cuaron and David Fincher. And, and yes, they may have you know, come short of big, big prizes or bigger prizes with, mm. with Mank than people maybe have forecasted them to, to get at the onset of these uh, Oscar seasons. But, hey, I mean, th- this has worked out. They give directors of, of some clout the freedom and the Go play resources to, yeah. Yeah, to make their personal films, to make their passion projects. So Paolo Sorrentino, he's made some unique shit out there, man. I I'm, also... I'm in. I also take umbrage with myself for comparing myself to Paolo Sorrentino right there. So this is multiple uh, times in this episode. Yeah. You are, uh, you're working through some stuff here, Michael Spencer. We're getting Pablo Lorraine's Kristen Stewart as princess Diana's story, uh, about that weekend, right? It's a, like a bottle episode of the crown (laughs) where she and Prince Charles decide to divorce. So, like we've been all over this. I, I've gone, you know, on a roller coaster in terms of my expectations, and now they're up again for Spencer at Venice. Yeah, we should have one of those. Like, what do you, what are the what do you call those things with the arrow in the middle, and it goes yeah. from red yeah. to green, and like we should have one of those sliding scales and just check in regularly on where you stand on the movie Spencer because you've been back and forth a lot. Back, we should have a meter. Uh, saying, Spencer, that's probably a good a hype yeah, meter yeah. for Spencer. Yeah. I agree. Spencer I'm, meter, well, yeah. Yeah, I think it, it might be the Mothering Sunday Josh O'Connor stuff that, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just him back in the news again, making me think, you know, it, it might be the Emmy nominations, but mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. want more. I just want more. But I, you're I positive. Know. You're in the green now. You're excited I'm, again. I got a cartoon show about the Royals on HBO Max that I'm going to watch this weekend. I got a lot of stuff going on. I'm just in for all of it, I guess. Just full Anglophile patronage. Uh, so I'm in for Spencer. All right. Good. We, we want to introduce a, a few more films from Venice that we haven't talked about yet, or at least at length. We have The Lost Daughter. This is directed 
uh, by Maggie G- Gyllenhaal, her debut. The plot premise reads, A woman, while on a summer holiday, finds herself becoming obsessed with another woman and her daughter, prompting memories of her own early motherhood to come back and unravel her. Uh, unravel her. Mike, this is uh, Olivia Coleman, Jesse Buckley, Dakota Johnson, Peter Sarsgaard, Paul Mescal, and Ed Harris in The Lost Daughter. So it's the woman on the train? <laughs> what? Is that... Is, that is it a giallo? Is? is this a giallo? Is that a giallo? <laughs> it's a, a giallo woman on the train. That's what I heard. That's, I have it on good authority. You have it. Your sources say? I'm going to start say, saying that I have sources and it's just going to be bullshit I come up with. <laughs> yeah, I tried that on Twitter, too, and, and it was bu- it was beautiful bullshit. I thought it was really clever. Uh, yes, yeah, so we know. We Nobody know. liked it. Michael, Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon. This is written and directed by Anna Lily Amirpour of A Girl Walks Home at Night. Plot premise, a girl with unusual powers escapes from a mental asylum and tries to make it on her own in Jesus. New Orleans. This wow. is Kate Hudson, Ed Screen, and Craig Robinson in Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon. Uh, great premise, great cast, and another one we just wanted to make mention of is Sundown. That's from Michael Franco of New Order. It won second place at last year's festival, uh, but his film has run into some major controversy right. last year, especially uh, regarding Mexican classism. This one's going to star Tim Roth, who I think was in that uh, show Lie to Me, if I remember right. He was in Lie to Me, On yeah. Fox, uh, and, Charlotte uh, Gainsbourg, also in Sundown certain island well. mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Uh, Sweden. Right, right. <laughs> Perhaps where he's going to be. Do you think people listen to this show for the first time and have any idea what we're talking about? Because all we do is make self-references to in-jokes that we've made from episodes ago at this point. Yeah, this is becoming very Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> it's, it's like a we're just the Arrested Development podcast at that's this right, point. If you miss right. one episode, you're screwed. That's better. That's a better, uh, yeah. You, you can't miss an episode. you got to go back and listen to them all. So if you're not laughing as heartily as you should be. Right, that's on and, you. That's on you. It's not Correct. on us. Uh, let's change gears to the Toronto International Film Festival for a minute. Uh, they added a bunch more selections from their Discovery and Contemporary World Cinema sections. Like I said, they added a few galas and special presentations as well. So Sundown and The Power of Dog, they come from Venice. We have Mothering Sunday, The Sacred Bonds, The Hill Where Lionesses Roar, and Uncertain Regard winner Unclenching the Fists. All of those are from Cannes. Michael, the, the movie I want to ask you about, though, is we saw our first still from A24's The Humans with Stephen Yun, Beanie Feldstein, and Stephen and Richard Jenkins are in this still. Yeah, they are both in that still and conspicuous by her absence as one of their co-stars. But this is classified as a drama on IMDb, even though we've previewed it a couple times. And there's a lot of preview material out there that kind of suggests this is going to be a thriller or a horror movie, like maybe a haunted house type vibe thing going on. But this is based off a Tony Award winning play. And Amy Schumer is one of the co-stars in this, which is something that took me by surprise when I learned it. Oh, give me this immediately. I've, I've read a lot about people friends of the show who who love the play so Good. i'm in for that and a24 adapting several this year the tragedy of macbeth etc mm-hmm. you know several plays um to the screen so that's cool mike we have at tiff as well the good house this is starring sigourney weaver and kevin klein they were together for a couple films back in the 90s right with uh the, the one in connecticut i can't remember its name but dave is the big one right sure I've, the one in the storm, the ice storm. The one in the storm. The ice storm wow, is the name good of the for you. movie. Good pull yeah. by you. Yeah. It's like in Easton, Connecticut, which is like 40 minutes from me. 
This is a, uh, a drama comedy, is The Good House, from the same woman who wrote A Dog's Purpose, so I have no doubt that we will be left in a puddle of our own tears by the end of this one as well. All right, so if you have to bet which one of them is dying of cancer, Sigourney Weaver or Kevin Klein, who would you bet? Oh, I think the obvious pick would be Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> but I, I'm going to go, I would put money on Kevin Klein because I think there'd be better odds. Uh, I'm, I think I'm with you, Kevin Klein. He's okay. going down in the good okay. house. Good. That's good. a that's a bad ending in a good house. All right, Silent Night. <laughs> Silent Night from Kira Knightley. Lily Rose Death, Depp, who's going to be a star of this uh, film festival. Uh, she's also in Wolf with George McKay. Lily Rose Death. De- depth. De- I can't say her name. <laughs> She's Lily the daughter Rose of Depp. the Grim Reaper. <laughs> Johnny Depp's kid. Lily Rose Death. My my father, he works hard. <laughs> Johnny Depp's daughter. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with me? I suck at this hosting gig. What do you think of Wolf and Silent Night? I forgot to write down the premises for you. <laughs> yeah, Silent Night, I just have written down the family stone because there was a still in it that reminded me of the family stone. I think the premise does as well. Very good. Uh, so I have nothing there. Uh, Wolf, I do have something interesting on. And here's my take on Wolf. There are so many George McKays in the entertainment industry <laughs> that I had to do a shocking amount of scrolling on IMDb to get down to the profile of the star of 1917. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not over how many George McKays there are. And in fact, I think that might be why he spells his name M-A-C-K-A-Y instead of just M-C-K-A-Y. And I, I think I might have cracked that code. I spent a good amount of time yesterday thinking about that. Um, if you just put the George McKay who never wears a shirt, mm. you would have gotten this guy. So right. you, you did. You did. You went down a rabbit hole for no reason. Correct. He hasn't put on a shirt in like three movies. Uh, I'm getting a little tired of it. Yeah. I, I, I need to work out. <laughs> he thinks he's a wolf in this one. Is a. <laughs> Apparently, and every, yeah, everybody's just like wolf, lamb, pig. How many tweets are we gonna get? What was the other? What was it? Everybody's like cow. They're building their own cinematic universe, and it's Guys, gonna end up being the food pyramid. There's been a there's been a single named films forever. You can go back. sweets, oils, carbs. Uh, exactly. We should write a script called Carbs. I think we All have. Right. Let's let's talk about the films that will not be at these festivals. And Clayton Davis, shout out to him, covered a bunch of movies that will not be in 2022 at all, Michael. But in terms of some films we covered at Venice, or covered in our Venice kind of outlook episodes earlier this month, we, we talked about Nightmare Alley. We talked about Park Chan-wook's movie. Mm-hmm. We talked about House of Gucci being here. None of them are. So... Nightmare Alley, I don't know that that necessarily surprises me. The Park Chan-wook movie, it keeps missing film festivals. That does that does raise some eyebrows. House of Gucci, we're recording this on the 29th, uh, maybe the 30th, too. We had some stills drop today. We had the trailer, hopefully, drop today. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I would expect we're going to get that one in 2021 still, but there's other big-name contenders that definitely are being removed not just from film festivals, but are being moved off of the year of 21 entirely. Yeah, I, I'm a little skeptical of these plays uh, by by A Nightmare Alley or, or the Park Chan-wook movie, or even House of Gucci, Gucci for that matter, which I'm a little less skeptical of because I think it's going to be so big. But my Nightmare Alley probably needs to do something at a festival, I would think. I mean, because most of these films that 
that win at the Oscars do something at festivals. I'm first. expecting it to move. I'm not I mean, expect I, like I'm not expecting it to, to come out right now. To be honest, yeah. Uh, I mean that's the thing. I mean if if you miss all your festival deadlines, you almost might as well move to the next year. I mean, look, we got countless examples of films just you know PTA's Phantom Thread hitting and getting nominations regardless, right? Little Women, etc. That just or maybe they hit F- AFI at the end of it all. Right. Right, they don't they don't hit the the first few and they make a later deadline, but typically even last year's late breakers like the Father and Judas and the Black Messiah, they had some film festival play leading into it, and Judas benefited from Sundance, but the Father bene- benefited from the previous Sundance. Right. So it's yeah, they broke late, but they still kind of had the industry eyes on them, and that's important. For these yeah, I don't disagree. Campaigns. I don't disagree. I mean, we just we just spent time talking about how important Venice is to the best picture race overall. Uh, but if in that same vein, like I said, I mean, if because these movies are so prestigious and they are missing these prestige events, I, I kind of expect them to be moved off. House of Gucci, I think, is is the only one that I'm of those three. Yeah, I expect be... still to come out in 2021. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, let's go over the list, though, from Clayton Davis. Canterbury Glass. This actually came from Max Blizz. Blizz? What the hell website did I go to? <laughs> Just clicking on random shit. Canterbury <laughs> Glass is going to go to 2022. And then Clayton Clayton talked about ne- next goal wins. Searchlight, Taika Waititi, Michael Fassbender, 2022. What broke my heart was Don't Worry, Darling. I picked that did, for a lot. You picked that for best picture, right? Uh, did, you had to say it, didn't you? But no, because I'm making a point because I picked Canterbury Glass. So I think this is the first time that both of our 100% accurate yeah. best picture picks are going to be moved an entire year out. We're, we're right for 2022. Yeah, so if you get any early odds, David. Yeah. yeah. Dave, if you get early odds, and don't worry, darling, mm-hmm. just take them. Right. Uh, but WB's Olivia Wilde Florence Pugh film will not be coming out this year with Harry Styles, etc. Too bad. The Whale from A24. This is Darren Aronofsky and Brendan Fraser. That will not be coming out this year. Mm-hmm. We have The Forgiven. Uh, this is John Michael McDonough's film uh, from Focus Features. Caleb Landry Jones, Jessica Chastain. It's about like this weekend where all these famous people are there. Ralph Ray Fiennes, etc. Look like a great premise that's not coming till 2022. And yesterday, last night, we got word that uh, Blonde, uh, with Anna de Armas' Marilyn Monroe, Netflix will not be releasing Blonde until 2022 as well. Andrew Dominic, who's the director of Blonde, came out and said it's going to be one of the top ten films of all time. Yeah. So that's yeah. high He's praise. Confident. He is confident. I think that's what we can say definitively about that. Uh, <laughs> aside from both of our best picture picks being moved, what's interesting to me about this entire list is, yes, we've talked about them. Yes, they seem like heavy hitters. Yes, they are poised to be contenders, or at least just on paper, before anybody actually knows anything else about how they're going to play in the theater. But none of those were on that list of that murderer's row of films that have definitive 2021 release dates. So we True. still, from the beginning week of October through the end of the year, have that like 14-week stretch that's going to be pretty packed to the gills. So all this is really doing is making 2022 be as loaded as 2021 seems to be. They're kind of splitting the difference here. Uh, And if all these play up to their potential, we're in the middle of kind of this two-year stretch of because a lot of things missed their mark in 2020, we have to play catch-up, and we're kind of getting spoiled as far as being moviegoers go. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you thought we would get past an ORC without mentioning 
the impact that'll have on theaters or what theaters are doing, you're wrong because this is a great chance for theaters. If all these movies do live up to their potential, there could be a huge draw to go see all these things in theaters. So hopefully that's how that will play out and it'll be a boon to the theatrical experience. I agree. And MGM is just sitting pretty with the, with Bond and House of Gucci there mm-hmm. in, in the in the late fall. Some some marquee spots. But uh, let, let's continue on with 2022 for for a minute, because The Exorcist is getting its new trilogy. We just covered news that David Gordon Green was going to or he, he had finished the script for his reboot requake for The Exorcist. And all <laughs> of a sudden, Mike, we get a story that Ellen Bernstein is coming back and that this new trilogy sold to Universal for $400 million. Yeah, this moved very fast from David Gordon Green saying that he had written a script to Universal shelling out hundreds of millions of dollars to procure it. But there's an obvious franchise to build off of here. They actually are saying it's going to be a franchise. It's going to be a trilogy, right? And so if the returns for this legacy horror properties reboot quill... (laughs) can match 2018's Halloween, which did better than a quarter billion dollar box office worldwide for its first installation of David Gordon Green's new trilogy, then this is a no-brainer pickup for Universal, I think, who's already doing business with Green because of Haddonfield and Halloween and the the reboot quill chise that they're building (laughs) off there, if I can uh, make my own term. Ellen Burstyn being back, too, is is a big deal because... I don't know that The Exorcist is going to be uh, an Oscar player, obviously, but I know it was in 1974. Oh, yeah. And currently, Sly Stallone holds the record for most time between Oscar nominations for playing the same character because he got nominated in 1976 for Rocky Balboa and he was nominated in 2015 for playing Rocky Balboa. The Exorcist came out two whole years prior to Rocky Balboa in 1974, and Ellen Burstyn was nominated them, and she's reprising her role. So if this does make Oscar headwaves for her in in 2022 that'll be 48 years between playing the same character and there could be a perfect storm brewing too because she's a beloved veteran it's been 20 years plus since her last oscar nomination but she's been nominated a ton only one win on her resume she probably was snubbed recently performance. right i mean (laughs) and the academy can remember that and she's playing a nostalgia role too so a lot going in her favor there's something to keep an eye on if the exorcist can be as great as it once was some 50 years ago so it's fascinating to me that uh, Ellen Bernstein now has a narrative again, all these years later, number one. Yeah. But number two, uh, that uh, the price is $400 million. I, I just I can't get over that, thinking about how badly some of these Exorcist prequels and requels and whatevers in the yeah. early 2000s, especially when we were growing up, Mike, how badly they flopped to give you guys – a sense of it. I mean, the original grossed 441 million worldwide on a budget of 12 million, right? 77's The Exorcist 2, fine. 31 million on a 14 million dollar budget, did okay. 1990's The Exorcist 3, 44 on an 11 million dollar budget. 2004, 78 million on a 50 million dollar budget. That's not good for the beginning. Mm-hmm. Dominion prequel to The Exorcist. This is what it reads. <laughs> and Wikipedia under box office. This film was a financial disaster. <laughs> and box office mojo said it only made 250k in theaters. So I guess it it tried to open and didn't and then just went straight to video Dominion. Ugh. I uh I can't even say that I've seen that one to be honest with you. Hey, look, The Exorcist is a tortured franchise. They haven't had a good installment 
since I think the first one. I, Exorcist three has its high marks, right? But it's been critically panned. Everything. Bibbs so. and company on on film Twitter there would would high would heavily disagree that the Exorcist three is not great, but yeah, right, that, <laughs> which yeah. is fine. But, Patrick Ewing's great in the Exorcist three. Can you say that much? <laughs> the, your, Universal's paying for David Gordon Green. I think that's pretty obvious. I mean, they they saw the returns that his touch can do with a legacy horror franchise already. I don't know. I would actually argue. I'm I'm too lost in the sauce and the Halloween lore. Anyway, I I was gonna say I don't know that The Exorcist is as commercially relevant as Halloween is. I don't know if you agree with that or if you think. I mean, clearly there's money to be made. They think, but I don't know if. Like, which of the two properties prior to 2018 would you say is more commercially viable between Halloween or The Exorcist? Prior, I'd still say Halloween because, yeah, I, I mean, think Rob so Zombie too, movies, yeah. they've always done pretty well. I mean, I'm sure we, we had a few snags, you know, in the road there for Halloween. I don't Not remember. I'm not familiar with any of those snags that you're referring to. I don't <laughs> know what that means. But yeah, I would agree. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm I, I'm excited for more David Gordon Green horror. I'm excited for Ellen Burstyn being back. I'm excited for anytime you want to talk about any old horror property getting treated with like the reverence that I think it should. I, I, it's a big deal. I agree. I agree. It's a sign of health for the industry. Four hundred yeah. million as a price tag. That that means somebody's got some money to spend. And Universal. Okay. Final story, Michael. Get back to the twenty twenty one campaign. Twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty two. Oscar calendar. Uh, is taking shape. We have the PGA Awards. They took their date on the schedule Saturday, February 26th of 2022, and they'll be nominating their films, uh, the documentaries for the PGAs on December 10th, and then the Best Picture animated film noms. Uh, Both of those uh, groups of categories will be on the uh, January 27th. So PGA is going to be the night before the SAGs on the, the end of February. BAFTAs will be second week of March. The Oscars will be the last week of March there. And um, that's how the end of the season will, will play out. The Critics' Choice will be early January, Mike. So PGA is actually in that number two spot, I guess you'd say, for the the big award shows. You can tell the producers are the ones who make the uh, all the decisions about making money too, because they're the ones that are slow playing and lo- slow rolling out their nominees month by month. Like December, we'll do the docs. January, we'll do the animated feature. February, we'll have the award show for the full thing. And you can tell the producers are the ones that make the, sh- the calls there as far as wanting to build up momentum and market this properly. Uh, what sticks out to me about this new calendar right now is that Critics' Choice is sliding into that uh, slot that's historically been the Golden Globes right now. Yeah. Yeah. And we got a long we got yeah. a long wait until the next big thing, right? That's January 9th and then now it goes all the I mean we'll have NBR on the 11th, but we really don't have any big award shows until February 26th. Mm-hmm. So that's that's something new. Typically the choice has been in there and we've had things more spread out. So we got an extra month and it's all going to come to a head at the end. One of the indie spirits, Mike Indie, sp- oh, I forgot to put them on here, but they- oh, they're before the BAFTAs. So we got the last week of February is uh, the guilds, basically PGA SAG, and then we got the first week of March is the spirits, then right. the BAFTAs, right. and then right. a week off, and then the Oscars. Well, March at least is going to be chock full of stuff for awards pundits to do every weekend. Totally. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just look. I- I'm fine as long as we don't have that six-week dead period again (laughs) where you and I are just beating a dead horse waiting for Nomadland to get its crown. 
<laughs> Did we mention the bucket and how it humanized this character with the haircut? Yeah. What matters to us, as always, dear listener, are your thoughts on any of these stories. We want to hear from you. What do you think of the selections for Tiff and Venice, as well as your thoughts on any of these trailers that we previewed here? Do you think they're going to live up to their contending uh, aspirations? You can leave us all of those, as well as any other thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns you have about anything we do here in the MMO Empire on our social medias. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com. And on Reddit, we are available everywhere you hear podcasts. If you're listening to us on the Apple Podcast app, if you would go in and leave us a five-star review, that would help us out greatly. Michael, uh, we have an actual review coming down the pipeline for a, a potential contender, so tell the good people what's next, and let's leave on some words of wisdom. Well, it is wise to, if you can safely do so, go back to the movie theaters. Tom Brugerman of IndieWire just put out the uh, big headline uh, on on IndieWire.com where he's like, if you love original films, this is the weekend to go to the movie theaters and support those films. We got The Green Knight, we got Stillwater, and uh, I think there's a couple more that I'm forgetting, but... Uh, Let's go see original movies. Jungle Cruise, I guess, is an original movie, even though a theme park ride is the basis of it. But okay, we got uh, we got movies to support this weekend. We will be reviewing The Green Knight next. We'll be talking about Dev Patel's Forty to One Best Actor odds. Michael, I know yes, David was tweeting at us in the middle of the night last night. <laughs> the Forty to One odds. I have no idea yet. I hope I hope he's in the running. I mean, the man's put out one good performance after another on his mm-hmm. career. I thought he was even really good in the personal history of David Copperfield. Why not? Why not? Yeah. Why not have Dev Patel rival Will Smith in this year? Uh, I'm all about it, but uh, yeah, can't resist those ads. David. <laughs> uh, no, I think, uh, <laughs> I think uh, we'll review a movie and we may review two movies. Who knows before our next Oscar race checkpoint or our next string of seven Oscar race checkpoints. Who knows how this, <laughs> this uh strange preview season of mmo is going but that's been been what it is and i, I i'm proud of our preview series our year in preview series that kind of just didn't end mike yeah but we we did like those hold up i mean we were talking about the fringe movies that may or may not be released this year and uh yeah that that series really held up so go back and listen to that too we are great i agree guys <laughs> <laughs> when reality sucks you can come preview this awards you're coming up with us we are mike mike and oscar trying to make award season year round without the stuffiness we will see you very soon see ya